I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I was a Jersey girl, and I always wondered what was out beyond the gate. And um, so I think my curiosity led me in very dangerous ways. Sometimes I'm very grateful that I didn't get into more trouble. That's Carol Dunham. I'm Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. It's so important to meet new people, and I think the best way to expand your network and make new friends is through someone you trust. This is why I started hosting KDCC Happy Hours once a month. My coaching clients are amazing, and I want them to be able to meet. Plus, there are so many other small business owners, creatives, and just badass people who should know each other. So I'm officially inviting you to join us at my next happy hour on March 21st. This is a special one because it's co-hosted with powerful ladies, in honor of International Women's Month, and we'll be having a guest speaker leading us in a conversation about taking brave actions. If you want to join, visit caraduffy.com forward slash events. As uh, John Lewis would say, we're up to good trouble. Yeah, (laughs) the best kind of trouble to be in for sure. (laughs) And, you know, I don't know for you, but it's like post-COVID and now suddenly like these lots of crazy expeditions and oh, yeah, just trying to, yeah, holding on, surfing the waves. Everybody is for sure ready to be going at light speed right now. Yeah. I am so honored to have you here today. When Kendra from my team and I went to Mountain Film this year, we were so excited to be sponsoring and we go to hear incredible stories and to find new potential podcast guests. And when we got to attend the three-part women's special showing with you and two other amazing powerhouses, it we just kept looking at each other and smiling like, this is exactly what we came for. Um, So thank you so much for being a yes to us and to our audience, but let's dive right in and tell everyone who you are, where you are in the world, and a few of the things that you're up to, because we could have a whole hour just listing (laughs) the things that you do. Oh, well, it it was a real honor to be on that stage with other powerhouse women, because honestly, um, I believe as an old anthropologist, like Margaret Mead said, that it's only a small group of committed women that can ever make any real and meaningful change on this world, or committed citizens, shall we say, but especially women. Um, uh, I you know, grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I was a Jersey girl, and I always wondered what was out beyond the gate. And um, so I think my curiosity led me in very dangerous ways. Sometimes I'm very grateful that I didn't get into more trouble. I ended up um, in Nepal uh, and ended up for 30 years in in Nepal and in Mongolia. And I was working with women and income generation and working up in rural areas. And uh, really, I I was just really looking at how can women have a little bit of a better life and a voice and say, and I was trying to gather voices. I remember spending time gathering manure one, one Christmas and taking manure to the prison in Nepal because it at that time period, Nepal, Nepal had one of the most draconian abortion rights rules in, in the world next to Sudan at that time period. And so women had to take care of themselves in the prisons. And 
Often, often it would be incest. Often they were attacked by even members that they'd married in young into families, and then their husband was down in India working. And so um, the best gift I could give them was manure. So I took them a a whole tractor full of compost and they wept because that was what they most needed just to be able to survive at that time. Um, so, but I, as an anthropologist, I've gone from looking at women and wondering, you know, in, I became very fascinated by traditional medicinal herbs and plants and how women not only were, it was their abortion um, um, herbs that they were using, but others that they were using for female health care, et cetera. And that led me then to help using herbs in for income generation. So we would make soaps and oils and things like that. My mentor was a woman named Anita Roddick. She started a company called The Body Shop. She really was quite a firebrand. Um, she really was the forefront of creating fair trade. So we would travel around the world and looking at what women were using traditionally on their skin and how we could have trade that could, uh, you know, impact rural communities uh, right at source in remote parts of the world. So that was a large part part of my life. I also um, I lived in Nepal and I studied Buddhism and I had a teacher. And um, I think in terms of resilience, Nepal has been through 30 really very rough years, not been a smooth romantic sailing. We've been through a Maoist insurgency, we've had earthquakes. And so I, you know, I feel very grateful for what I have learned from very tough, strong, resilient mountain women, um, as well as uh, I've spent 20 summers up in Mongolia with Mongolian yak herders. And these women who survive in minus 40 and uh, very different ways of being. So I feel very grateful that I've had a life where I've been able to see many ways of the possibilities of what it means to be human how to make a meaningful and purposeful life. And there's not one script. And... <laughs> there certainly is not. And I, I would love to go back to even eight-year-old you. Like, would eight-year-old you have imagined this is your life? <laughs> um, you know, I when I was eight years old, I really loved, I would, I used to run away. I was very rebellious. And I remember I'd sneak out of my window and down. And I'd like in the old days, we'd have a bandana. Mm -hmm. I remember putting scrambled eggs once in my bandana. And, <laughs> and I would go and I found this amazing tree down near the river in a creek. And, you know, here I was, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. And I had great solace mm -hmm. in nature, you know, when times were difficult or tough. I always felt most at home in in nature and it was a really profound solace for me so i always knew nature would be a big part of my life and i was really blessed because in nepal we have those himalayas and i created a life where i could spend i knew i would start to be almost like an animal or i'd shake or you know need mm -hmm. mental health if i didn't have enough time outside i needed to be i needed to feel the sunshine i needed to smell the earth uh, that was the greatest mental health for me like i kind mm -hmm. of as a young kid already i was like well why does it have to be this way you know you get up and then you have to go to a job and you spend most of your life at a job and i was like i think i i think there has yeah. to be something more so mm -hmm. that was i think a very big 
Um, and I, and that there has to be something beyond. I remember as a little kid reading National Geographic and seeing all these. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing yurts and uh, they, they had a, something. And that really was a very powerful impact on me. And um, so, yeah, I've worked with National Geographic now for about 20 years. And mm-hmm. National Geographic, uh, yeah, I think had very strong impact off, on me as a little girl. Yeah. Me too. I mean, between <laughs> um, National Geographic and Indiana Jones, I was like, that's the life I want. I want adventure. I want showing up in random new places. Um, and it's been interesting to take all the things that have inspired me and be carving out my ridiculous journey. Um, when you got to partner with National Geographic, did, were you like, oh my gosh, like this has been, I've been manifesting this since I was like, you know, a kid, like were you so excited to become an official part of the magazine that you had been I, reading? I was, I was. Mm-hmm. It was definitely like a like a, a dream come true. So how it happened was, so we're um, up. My husband, my partner, and I, we were up in a fair in far northwest Nepal in an area called Humla with a people called the Nyinba, the people of the Sunny Valley, and they traditionally one woman marries all the brothers in a family. And so it's called polyandry. So most people have heard of polygamy, where there's one man and many women, um, but not the opposite. And so I was very fascinated. How could that work? You know, we think it's hard enough to take care of one husband. (laughs) You take care of many. And um, so having spent long periods of time there, and then we did films, and then National Geographic said, wow, could we do a film with you? And um, so it that's mm-hmm. how it became. But I was always very, very interested in telling women's stories, particularly, mm-hmm. and um, voices that aren't always heard and that are rare and unusual. And so yeah. I, we were able to tell the stories of uh, many of our dear friends in Humla and what it was like at that time period to be married with many um, husbands. Um, since that time, with the Maoist revolution, uh, many of the women ran off to join uh, the Maoist revolution and um, with new and other economic opportunities because uh, this was a system where they all the brothers would contribute to the, the household. So they would mm-hmm. become much wealthier than their monogamous uh, Hindu neighbors mm-hmm. in, in nearby villages. So w- it was a way of survival. But uh, when there were other economic opportunities um, came for them to survive, uh, polyandry is, you know, there's very, very little of it existing. Mm-hmm. So interesting. And how did you go from Princeton, New Jersey? I'm also born in New Jersey, from Princeton, New Jersey to <laughs> Nepal. Like, how did that leap happen? Were you just like one day, like, I just bought a one way ticket? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> Actually, it was a, I was at, so my story was, so I was studying anthropology at Princeton and, you know, I'd sit there and I'd get lost in these old dusty books in the open stacks down there at Firestone Library. And I would dream, I used to love to read all the great explorers and, you know, and there's great, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Alexander David Neal. She was this amazing French woman and she went and she traveled all throughout Tibet. She was a very strong, independent woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of great you know, Gertrude Bell. There's a lot of great female um, explorers, and many of them had also gone to the Himalayas. So I was supposed to go to Sri Lanka, actually, and I was supposed to study something called Sarvodi. I convinced Princeton that they really needed, you know, I wanted, I didn't want to study from books. I needed to learn from people. I needed to learn from experience. And um, I wanted to go to study Sarvodia, which was an area, a place where, um, 
it, it, they were actually, it was a Buddhist organization, but it was involved in activism. So I was very interested in how contemplation and activism, how did they, how did that work together? How yeah. could you contemplate and then be active in the world to change the world? Um, and because I was experiencing a lot of activists as being very angry people, a lot mm -hmm. of them, I said they, they were coming from their anger. I felt, and I was like, wow, I'm not sure if the best source of change should should come from there. So I was mm -hmm. supposed to go to Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, a war broke out and I couldn't go. And I had like one week I had to decide and I had a good friend across this, the way and he had been in Sri Lanka. He'd also been in Nepal and he said, you're going to got to go to Nepal. You're going to fall in love with this great guy named Tom Kelly. Study <laughs> so I went because it was the year of the woman, women mm -hmm. and I was, I thought and I explained, I was interested in women and but they threw me into a Buddhist nunnery. And so I had to learn the language uh, at, the, at the nunnery. And so I was like, well, well, these women are doing development too. They're just doing mm -hmm. inner development. They're not doing outer development. So that really was a major pivot in my life and a major mm -hmm. shift by looking around me and saying, like, I had this idea and this plan, but then what yeah. I was saw around me. And I have to tell you one quick little funny story, if you don't mind. It's sure, nunnery, please. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> So I'm in the Buddhist nunnery. And I have this wonderful, sweet, wonderful, um, uh, my roommate. She's an older, elderly ani. She doesn't have any more teeth anymore. So she sort of sampa roast barley in her mouth. But we slept on these Tibetan carpets, and they were just chock-a-block full of bed bugs and, and fleas. And it was just like I was just being ravaged to death. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, I just can't do this anymore. So as you know, in a Buddhist nunnery, you shouldn't kill things, not allowed to kill things. So I had to sneak some flea powder in and I looked around, <laughs> was sure my, 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 she wasn't around, my roommate. And I started dousing my rug with uh, the flea powder. And unfortunately, she comes right in and I'm caught totally red-handed potting this flea powder. And she goes, what are you doing? And I go, oh, um, I'm giving medicine to the fleas. And she says, well, what does it do? And I said, well, it, it, it makes them go away. She's so great. I need some too. I said, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I officially became the mass flea murderer at the monastery. So I'm quite sure I'll be reborn again as a flea because I was responsible for killing all the fleas in the carpets of the, the nunnery. <laughs> anyway, so then I, that's where I learned my, the language and um, and I became very, very interested because I, I met a lot of women, Western women also, who had shaved their heads and become Tibetan Buddhist nuns. So this was another form of adventures, right? I was going yeah. off and leading expeditions up in the mountains. And also we were doing a lot of medical expeditions. I later worked with the Upaya Foundation. We were doing uh, medical expeditions up the mountains. But I was like, well, there's also inner expeditions and there's there's yeah. other ways you can there's actually the great mountain and years later i did a film with um someone named wade davis mm -hmm. another fellow national geographic explorer and it was called it was a series called light at the edge of the world and it was called tibetan mind sciences and so i i'm naughty and as a female producer and i was like well I'm going to find a female hero for this story. So I asked my son-in-law, who was a, a Tibetan, he was actually a Bhutanese traditional doctor, 
married to my foster daughter. I raised six foster kids before I had my own children. And so Pema Bhuti was married to Amchi Sherab, a traditional Bhutanese um, a doctor, and they lived up in Kumbu in the Everest region. So I said, uh, you know, are there, who, are there any really great Buddhist practitioners? And so he drew me on a napkin, a map, of Everest, a region. So most people look and they see all these amazing great mountains and everything. And he, instead, this was a herm, hermitess and hermit. And he's like, well, there's, you know, this this man, he's way in here. He's been here for 10 years. There's this woman here. She's been hiding in the mountain crevices. So, and for the local yeah. traditional Sherpas, those were the great heroes, those mm. real adventurers, because it's like, you know, it's, you know, so, okay, we may think, wow, it's so amazing. You climb Everest and I'm not saying that it's not a feat, though that's another mm -hmm. discussion we can talk about <laughs> if we want to go into that deeply. But um, uh, really, they said, you know, the real mountains to climb are the mountains in our own minds. And so we found this Anitsampangawang. She was considered to be a realized nun. Her story was very similar to a very famous female saint in Tibet named, um, uh, her name was Yeshi Tsogyal, who was considered uh, in the seventh century, she was um, at age four, she had, she could read and write. I mean, try to find in the West a great hero that can read and write in the seventh century that was a female. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and so this, she also had been, all the men in Tibet wanted to marry her. And so <laughs> she had to run into the wilderness. The king said, oh, well, I'll solve the problem. I'll marry her. Mm -hmm. And then the wildest, greatest saint in Tibet named Padmasambhava was the Buddha of transformation. He says, you know, they they have an amazing uh, relationship. They fall madly in love. And um, this becomes the beginning of her great spiritual journey. And it ends up, she goes to Nepal and to Bhutan, and she writes. She's very important in Tibetan uh, Buddhist mystical history and story. So this was this woman, Anitsampangawang. She was very beautiful. She came from a very wealthy family, uh, a Sherpa family. And uh, all the men in the region wanted to marry her. And all she wanted to do was practice Buddhism, go internally inside herself and climb the great mountains inside herself and her being. And so um, so it was going to be the the, fam the the men had all come and they'd surrounded her hermitage, which was um, just below Tengboche Monastery. Anybody who's ever gone up to Everest in the, uh, the Everest region, on the way towards Dingboche, there's a little nunnery and it was down in there. And she realized, so she goes out to the crapper and she looks down the shitter hole, and excuse me, but she, and she looks down and she says, that's my path to freedom. So because in the morning they were going to take her away, she was going to have to marry this big wealthy man. And she climbs in her nightie down the very steep, steep mountainside that's covered with shit, but it's frozen shit at least. because yes. <laughs> And then she <laughs> crawls up the mountain up to Tengboche. She knocks on the door in the middle of my Tengboche. She's like, you know, you're a woman. You're not supposed to be in the monastery tonight. And she says, help, you know, all I want to do is study Buddhism, please. She says, well, I can't let you hear, but I'll let Dorji take you up and over the Nangpala Pass. And you can go up into Tibet and um, study up there with this Lama. So she studied. She gained realization. She went back and was called Tsetsam Ani, which means lifelong retreatant. Mm -hmm. So I had had, so my, my brother, my son-in-law had been uh, one of her students. She had then, after mm -hmm. being in lifelong treat, she would open the door just a little bit here and just poke out her little face. So all the Sherpas, before they would go on up to Mount Everest, 
mm-hmm. would always go and get the blessings of Tzitzham Ani. So I went, we went to go do a film and mm-hmm. I had a girlfriend who lived up there. She said, there's no way you're going to get a, 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 an interview with Tzitzham Ani because she won't, yeah. you know, she won't, she doesn't, won't let any, she never let anyone take her picture or anything. You must have gotten it wrong. So I run up there. She opens the door and she says, I have been waiting for you. I had a dream of <laughs> you. And then I remembered that on my very first time I'd ever gone up to um, mm-hmm. Kumbu, I had gotten up early at six in the morning. There'd been a woman with beautiful silver braids and she was feeding birds. She was sitting down cross-legged in a forest, feeding birds and birds were lighting on her. They were on her shoulders. They were in her lap because she was tossing out some bird feed all around as she was mm-hmm. singing her mantras and it, it had profound impact for me. So for I sure. only knew in that moment she was right across from Setsam Ani's, where I would find Setsam Ani, who'd been there all that time. And she was also the grandmother of my foster daughter, Pema Bhuti. And I never knew that. It was very That's powerful. So there's a little yes. bit of magic up in the mountains. And I <laughs> yeah, I have chills. That story, it was amazing that that, to me, it's a sign that we're on the path that we're supposed to be when there's all of these magical coincidences and overlaps and it all starts making sense as we keep going down the path. Are you a business owner who has bought the courses, followed the instructions and still not going your business? I get it. There's so much out there telling business owners what we should do to make our business work. And while much of that information can be true for who made it, and may even give you some new ideas. To truly grow your business, you need bespoke plans and strategies made just for you. You are unique. Your business is unique. You need unique custom plans built for you. That's one of the things I create with my clients as a business coach to help them double their business without doubling their work. Would you like to double your business without doubling your work? I've helped so many of my clients do this year over year. And if you're a business owner, I can help you do this too. You seem to be so um, centered and and outward looking, but from decision making from you, you don't seem to be very influenced from others. Is that how you've always been, or is that a myth? Is that my illusion from the outside? Like you seem so directive with how where you're making life choices, but uh, which isn't the norm for most people. Most people, it's very taking in from everyone else and being influenced in that capacity. I, I, I would not say that I'm not influenced by people because I am very much and yeah. my, um, and by my environment, but I will say, um, how do I explain this? Um, so in Buddhist practice, there's one really beautiful practice where, uh, you, their completion stage practices where you visualize really beautiful, magical worlds inside yourself. And you, so, so, you know, the many kinds of Buddhism all over the world and the Buddhism of the Himalayas, uh, Vajrayana Buddhism has a lot of visualizations. It's very, you know, you, you create like very or elaborate movies in your heads or whatever. And fortunately, and there are places, there are times where there's formless meditation and none, mm-hmm. but at, at this stage, and you create these beautiful worlds inside yourself. So I would just ask you or mm-hmm. anyone who's listening, you know, to imagine that world for yourself. Mm-hmm. What would it look like? What would be that ecosystem? What kind mm-hmm. of trees would be in there? Is it a, oh, is it a lake? Is it a river? Is it an ocean? 
Is it a mountain? Is it a desert? You know, what is the ecosystem? Or maybe some people are more safe. And so then, and what is the home? What is Mm -hmm. like perfect home? And what is it like? And what are the sounds? What are the birds? What variety is there that are there? You know, what kind of animals are there? The sounds, the tastes, the smells. And you kind of create that and you work on that. It's a very beautiful, it's a very powerful, it's a very healing uh, thing or a way uh, to do. So, um, you know, I would not say that I, you know, I, you could say I'm just a stubborn bullheaded Aries probably. And I, <laughs> I would, you know, barrel with my horns in and break all the China, you know, because, um, you know, I, 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 I've made many, many mistakes and I have the, you know, my, how do you say my, I've, I have definitely scuffed my knees along my ways with my idealism too, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous sometimes. And so, um, learning to listen to others is really actually very, very important. And, um, but to also kind of go have a deep, intimate relationship with yourself. So that's, mm-hmm. so by creating these beautiful spaces inside ourselves, but I've really, you know, I think the tragedy of modern life often can be, we just try to fill our everything. And we're very scared of open spaces or even internal spaces and of even like, because maybe emotions may arise and that mm-hmm. time, uncomfortable feelings and difficult feelings or tension or sadness or stress. And, and so how do we learn like in our bodies with breath, yeah. you know, to actually have a very intimate relationship with ourselves? And if we can have an intimate relationship with ourselves and enjoy it, like it tastes sweet. Like <laughs> being is, is, you know, that yeah. we actually enjoy being alone, <clears throat> get out in the forest, hear the river go in silence. You know, if we can really have comfort with that, mm-hmm. I think good decisions can arise from that. Yeah. But that's me. You, Everybody's different. <laughs> when you look at your journey so far, are there moments when you have like a, oh, like there was my life before Tibet and here's my life after Tibet? Like, what are some key markers that you know just shifted everything that you thought the world was, let alone where you were going? Well, I always say for me, when I first got to Nepal, it was like Dorothy and Wizard of Oz. And I, my life went from black and white to mm-hmm. color. I mean, just the sheer chaos of Kathmandu. You know, if anyone's yeah. ever been there, it's total madness, but somehow it still flows. The traffic, the sounds, the people, the chaos. Mm-hmm. Life is in the streets and you see, you know, dead bodies and children are laughing and playing and women are breastfeeding and everything's out in the open. You know, nothing's mm-hmm. behind closed doors that way. So I I know that um yeah, for me, there was, you know, obviously going to Nepal was a very major, um, major lifetime. I, I'll tell you a story, though. So I, uh, you know, I trust, I had friends that I had trusted, and they always say never go into business with friends, but I don't listen sometimes, as I said. And, that's <laughs> and so I had a time in my life where sort of all my outer constructs were completely dissolved. And I'll tell you the story. Mm-hmm. It, it's a little bit hokey dokey, but that 
that's what I am. So, um, so I had a wonderful, crazy teacher and uh, a yoga teacher. And he, this is down in, in South India, in uh, near Karnataka, there's jungles, there's, it's the Western Ghats is, it's actually was once a part of Ghana Wanda land. So it's very unique, ancient cool. primeval palms. And um, it's the largest concentration of what we know as Shakti peats or Devi peats. That means ancient, sacred, feminine power spots for Indians mm. on the planet, for Indians, those ancient early sites are all very concentrated in this area. So there is a wonderful, very powerful temple called Mukambika or Ma, and it's sort of three goddesses in one. And so I had done practice there, and they said, well, you really got to go up and go off alone into the forest and jungle, and obviously there's big pythons and lots of scary animals. And it's where they would actually go for uh, for diamonds and diamond mining. So there were these big holes. So I thought instead of finding a cave, I found this. <laughs> I wasn't sure if there was like big snakes or there were spiders. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so I go down in there and I foolishly is like thinking, you know, I'm so much so brave and strong. <laughs> and I'm like, Kali Ma. So Kali, as many of you may know, in the Hindu tradition, she's um, the goddess of time, but she's also the destroyer. So she destroys. But as we all know, like winter has to be destroyed for spring to come. You know, um, patriarchy has to dissolve for new systems to emerge. Um, you know, uh, petroleum, post-petroleum, we have to consider new ways of how we're going to be. So sometimes old structures that are outmoded have to die for new things to come and that is the nature of being so i said kalima do with whatever you will with me i'm yours <laughs> be careful what you ask for girl yeah. <laughs> so I, I literally less than a week um you know all sort of uh, uh relationships where i had had deep trust everything suddenly just eroded and collapsed and my livelihoods collapsed and anything that sort of so-called was so-called solid structures, outer structures mm -hmm. in my life, all dissolved. So I had to crawl up to Mongolia. And um, so here's Mongolia. So we often will say like India, we would go in the winters and do big yoga retreats and things. And it's all full of very soft and, and sweet mm -hmm. energetically. And Kathmandu we used to tease is sort of tantric with black and, and, you know, light and dark where it's almost like putting your finger into a, into a, into a electric socket. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> powerful energy, good, bad, and ugly, and either you, you know, scream and run away, or you go, wow, there's something very powerful in energetically of the land, or they call Talaju's Valley. So Kathmandu is historic, traditionally named after the, the goddess Talaju. So the mm -hmm. her valley is traditionally considered a womb in sacred geography. So all this has happened, and a friend says, well, come on up to Mongolia. You know, I have a camp up here. And so I literally sort of crawl up and I'm broken. Like I'm inside, like my faith in other humans is kind of broken, you know, kind of broken. And, and uh, it was the horse. It was um, getting on a horse mm -hmm. and there are no fences and we were out with a bunch, I was a bunch of us and a big clouds in the, in the okay. far off. And um, I'm, I love medicinal plants. So I was like looking and gathering the medicinal plants and kind of lots, I was on the horse, but I was actually looking down and, and, and then this nomad comes running up and in Mongolian, he's very angry with me. And, and he's basically saying, you dumb idiot, you were supposed to have gone with the others. They're all in a van. They've gone back. 
I've got all their empty horses. The storm is coming in. The lightning's coming in. And we're going to have to book our way home. So when he, you know, he, he bumps on the on the back of a horse, and they and we're in full gallop with the rain and lightning. So there, and I had to hold on for dear life, and I was very terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got off that after thirty kilometers like that of in the rain at full, I got off in a delirious state because I had sort of like gone through fear to the other mm-hmm. side, and I had no fear anymore. And I was so grateful to the horse. So uh, mm-hmm. in Mongolia, they have a term, it's called himor, means wind horse. Tibetan, we say lungta. They say himor. And they always say like, Chinggis Khan had a lot of himor because he's <laughs> decisive. He was decisive. So they say indecisive is when you have a low himor, your wind horse. Mm-hmm. Oh, but if you're like, you know, I'm going to go here direction. We go to the Balkans tomorrow. You know, <laughs> it, it means your wind horse is strong and the vitality. Mm-hmm. So the raw, raw elements of Mongolia, Mongolia is strong. Like mm-hmm. you, you either Mongol people are, you know, they live through minus 45. And then, in, you know, my husband's in right now in the Gobi, it can be 110. And, yeah. um, you know, they're strong and they're tough and resilient because they have a little really, you know, and it's the elements the elements mm-hmm. that give you that vitality by being out there. You know, it's pouring rain and his Westerners were like, wait, wait, we need shelter. And they're like, it's just water dripping down my face. What's the yeah. problem? <laughs> and you learn, you have, you have a different relationship with uh, yeah. the elements and that. So I'm very, very grateful and feel very blessed. That was, those were, those are some very strong turning points in my life. <laughs> I did a road trip with two friends through Mongolia and it was one of the best adventures I've ever had. And just, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect showing up besides a few videos of people on the step and that was it. And to see how diverse the landscape is in Mongolia was really surprising. Like it it felt almost like traveling in a road trip through the, through America of places that looked like Colorado and places that looked like Ireland and green and waterfalls and the desert that like, it was such a variety of landscape in such a more condensed space. And the like seeing wild horses and the, the, all the space that there is, everyone's just so nice as well, which I think we often say as Westerners to any place that this feels magical to us, but truly everybody was like, sure. What do you need? Not a big deal. Okay. And yeah. it was it was a transforming space. And I keep telling people, like, go, go, go see it. Go explore what's happening there. And um, I don't know who's taking me up on it yet, but it really <laughs> was one of the most magical places I've been. And so thankful that we randomly decided to take that trip between both of us having work trips in other parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. Well, d- come come back. There'll be Ira, there's no. milk. So we have worked with, no, we have Mongol nomad partners in the Bunkan mm-hmm. Valley, in Narkhangai, Setserdig, yeah. and um, we've been leading horse pilgrimages there. And we raised, so I raised my children as little, mm-hmm. you know, so from little kids. And um, I'm so grateful to Mon- Mongolia and Mongolians. Um, mm-hmm. They gave my boys, you know, we talk about women and women's rights, but um, I also believe as a mom, if you can raise men who know how to love women and treat women right, I was like, I don't know if I can create world peace, but at least if I can, you know, have influence to have, you know, 
young men that are respectful women. That's a huge thing. And so in Mongolia, like my boys would go had go in the Nadams with the other with the Mongol boys. And they were tough, you know, little boys they'd like want to shove them off for these little white boys in here and <laughs> be on these half wild horses, you know, and full and full gallop, you know, with and no um saddle nothing. Mm-hmm. And they'd be, you know, at full gallop for, for 15 kilometers and some of them up and down and steep hills. And I could tell you a lot of stories of some wild shamans <laughs> and, um, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, anyone wants to come and, uh, you know, contact me if you want to come up and uh, yeah. some horse riding. Cause it's also the horse is a way of, uh, truly and genuinely, um, finding your, you know, it, it's like another way to create a deep relationship with yourself. The horse is a great, yeah. Um, tool or method to know, yeah. recognize their own fears and uh, to go to some deeper places. They're, they've been a great companion species for humans for at least 6,000 years. Well, I think that's actually a great segue into what do you think powerful and ladies mean? And does, does the definition change when those words are put together for you? Oh, thank you. Wow. I've met a lot of powerful women in my life. and. Um, just to stay on the Mongol theme, mm-hmm. um, Mongolia only has, like they don't have this in Tibet, but um, they have a tradition of reincarnated women who are considered to be Taras, that, and Tara is considered to be like a goddess savior, but they're living, embodying that element or tradition. And, um, you know, men really respect and honor that. And um, we did a film once on... Uh, Narandelek, she is, and she had a little, twelve uh, sons, and she they treated. I was like, gosh, I think I want to be a goddess because if I get my <laughs> sons to treat me like that, they were they were. She was just amazing, and so when communism collapsed in Mongolia, she was the very first to be brave enough to say, because they didn't know, is it going to last? Maybe mm-hmm. this will be a short period and then it'll go back to communism. And yep. she's like, no, you know, I, I am, I am, a, you know, I bought a, a Buddhist uh, woman leader and she went right down to see her holiness, his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And she had visions. She was very, you know, visionary and she would, in her visions, go ride black horses off to these um, other horse heavens that uh, in traditional Mongolian shamanism. And she had a vision of creating a forest, which she did then. So in like way up, this is in far Western, in Hoftan, far Western Mongolia, she planted a forest, you know, very great visionary. So powerful women. Um, I feel so blessed to have met many powerful women. And then just to give on the other side. So in growing, Mm -hmm. you know, spending 30 years in Nepal, um, starting many years ago, early, early years, I uh, uh, interviewed and spent a lot of time with a lot of the ex-Kumaris. So Nepal has a tradition mm-hmm. of living goddesses, and it's complex. So, you know, the, these are little girls that um, are were identified very young, um, prepubescent, and they're considered to be the incarnation of the goddess Talaju. But they're considered to have so much power that like there was a sad story. One of the ladies told us how when she was a child, there was a man and he came very sick. Probably, it sounds like he probably had tuberculosis. He was coughing a lot. But he, so he prostrated in front of her and he, a little spittle accidentally dropped on her toe. And everyone in the room 
went, <gasps> and even him, he looked at her horrified, you know, his eyes wide open. And the next day he died. And she was so terrified that maybe she, you know, the goddess, mm -hmm. she, you know, I have this goddess in me. Maybe yeah. I killed this man. <laughs> Right. So the raw fierce power of, you know, that. And so when we look at patriarchy, et cetera, a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, we'll say, well, they're just trying to contain that men are very, very terrified of that sheer wooden Hindu yeah. monology we call Shakti is, you know, is such a radiant, powerful source. It's the origin of all life that women have within them, you know, of all, you know, even me as an old biddy, you know, possible. <laughs> I mean, I, I will still have that power and um, that many folks will tremble at the notion of, mm -hmm. of, of powerful women. And, um, you know, women have been burned at the stake, um, you know, midwives, the which is the birth and that magic, but then that the fear or the terror mm -hmm. of strong women. Um, and yet, and then what's very painful is to see when we ourselves even buy into the patriarchy, so to speak, and then clamp ourselves down and deny our own power. And at the same time, like, I'm not one of those people that just think, oh, I love Barbie, by the way. I don't know if anybody's yeah. seen it or not. I loved it. And I love so good. I love when it's like, well, we're not really totally ready. We'll keep the, the Supreme Court all women at this time. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was one of the best lines there. But um, <laughs> is, you know, and to be incarnate in a woman's body. Um, yeah. We have uh, a lot of traditional Buddhist sayings where, you know, actually we have more potential for enlightenment in a woman's body than a man even, you know, because we have space and we have that mm -hmm. And so we have that wisdom and we have compassion. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm not sure that personally, I don't think gender is really related to compassion because, you mm -hmm. know, women can be cruel and horrible. Anyone who knows, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever read any Margaret Atwood, she's done a great job at like, you know, yeah. the, how horrific women can be to each other in middle school, et cetera. Mm -hmm. oh, and now with social media, with girls, you know, it can be, you know, uh, it can be very, we can be very, just as, as horrific to each other. So power without compassion, without mm -hmm. kindness um, can be dangerous. That's all. all right. Yeah. When you look at what's coming up for you in the next year, what are you excited about? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I got a lot happening. <laughs> um, so in this moment, you're catching me, and I am about to go on a big journey uh, with National Geographic, and um, we'll be going to Brazil. And um, it's very exciting because the indigenous peoples, when we talk about grandma, and I still don't believe I'm fighting for this thing, when we realize how indigenous peoples are really the stewards of the planet, how 80% of the, of the greatest biodiversity on the planet is in places where mm -hmm. indigenous peoples have left and held on to those pieces. And, and, and they have to fight all the time to keep those lands from, um, to be protected. And Brazil is one of those places. And yeah. very good news with uh, the current president um they've just all met all of the um uh, tribal leaders and um and it's looking like even for larger than brazil for regionally on trying to protect the rainforest which is like a lung of our planet and yeah. earth so um uh and i'll be going from there to borneo i'm very excited um 
and other play and um, which is just so rich in biodiversity and also very rich in indigenous peoples. We'll be um, seeing a lots of uh, different kinds of elephants on this trip from cool. elephants to the domesticated ele elephant, which in Asia, what's fascinating when we look at elephants compared uh, to um, then in um, Africa, where we have the large mm -hmm. African elephant, you know, is what we don't think about is so with the loss of biodiversity on this planet, with the mass extinction that has gone on of animals in my lifetime, most people don't realize that over 85% of all mammals on this planet are us humans and our domesticated animals. So as someone who spent 20 years living with nomads in Mongolia, I'm mm -hmm. very, very fascinated by our human relationship to animals from microbes to yaks. <laughs> and, you know, when we look, so like with the domesticated elephant in, uh, in Asia, the challenges are like during COVID in Thailand, there was without tourists, there was nobody to even feed the elephants because we're like, look, we don't need them anymore. We're not logging with them anymore. We don't need them. But that's a 3,000 year old relationship humans have mm -hmm. had with those animals. So I'm I'm very excited for that for that trip. Yeah. I'm I'm very excited. I'm heading off with another fabulous powerhouse woman who I strongly recommend um, you interview in the future, Christine Amor Lavar. Um, and we're going to be going off into the Gobi. Uh, that'll be in March, cool. in minus 45, to go to the Thousand <laughs> Camel Festival. Come along if you like, Cara. Come join us. Yeah. It, it takes a little bit of madness. Um, I'm really <laughs> in love with Bactrin camels. They're like mm -hmm. the... Um, Mack trucks of the silk, you know, of the Silk Road historically. Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, humans had, you know, this is these are three thousand year old relationships, and they're not like those grumpy dromedaries, uh, you know, the one humped. Mm -hmm. These are like the Cadillacs of camels because they're big and fuzzy and furry. And again, you know, what happens as ways of living change? And our humans, you know, these animals that we relied on to live with, and you know, Mongols, as as I know you know, Kara, like the weeping yeah. camel. When say a baby doesn't can't a baby camel won't milk from its mother, uh, they have songs that they'll sing, humans sing, that actually will yeah. help the mothers, the mother camel you know, let, milk will drop and so it can nurse, so the baby can nurse and live. And so the humans and the animals are very, very close and very intimate. And um, I think you become a different kind of human. Like the Mongols think if you don't have a herd, you're actually only half human. So, so beautiful, different mm -hmm. kind of kind of human. So I'm busy working on on a book project, and so I have a um, I run a nonprofit foundation with a fellow mm -hmm. National Geographic um, explorer. She's a marine biologist named Tierney Tees. Absolutely mm -hmm. unbelievable, extraordinary woman. And um, we're you know asking the question, what could we wear in a post petroleum future? And so we are we have been it was our COVID mental health project. And we have been interviewing people all over the world, indigenous communities, not only looking at the common, like you would think, you know, oh, yeah. oh we're such a weird species. How did we even wear <laughs> clothes in the first place? You know, we lost our hair. And then, you know, from after skins, and we call them the big five, because mostly for most of human history, we've been wear wearing cotton, wool, silk, hemp, and linen. Mm -hmm. And 
then they're the uncommon. So we've been exploring and finding, you know, lotus fibers in Cambodia and bark cloth in Uganda and musk ox in Alaska and, you know, pineapple with the in, in, in the Philippines and, you know, these extraordinary other kinds of fibers that humans have been using and then and then talking with cutting edge scientists who are creating mm -hmm. using microbes and then the feedstock is really fascinating. Are they they're mm -hmm. Leftover, there's a company in Mexico, they're using the fruit waste left after you've made fruit juice. They're using agricultural waste. Sometimes they're even using carbon waste left actually from, from factories as we're trying to create the new. So the future of the world, as we ask, you know, is going to be in terms of food, clothing, and shelter because of this huge loss of biodiversity, the loss mm -hmm. of habitat loss of many of our animals, um, you know, it's going to food. So we have to decide what are we, you know, are we going to wear or are we going to feed ourselves? And a lot of people think mm -hmm. the future will be eating bugs. So I, <laughs> I had such a fabulous time. Uh, just a year ago, I was up in Assam and I was mm -hmm. chasing after two extraordinary um, varieties of moths. So one is the eerie silk moth and it is also known as a himsa or because it's true you don't have to boil the larvae to make silk because it has mm. a unique kind of cocoon and you can take the larvae out. But oh. Since the second century, when as the the, um, the the tribal peoples of the Assamese forests have been uh, raising and rearing the eerie, they take them out and they eat them for protein. And so it's actually quite amazing because then people come in and say, "Well, we need more and more," and they say, "Well, I can't eat that much. <laughs> I can't eat this much, so I'll only grow this much." So it's very much in relationship and they eat totally different kinds of tree leaves not the mulberry as we think of with the bumbex mori and then there is the muga silk which is the most expensive silk found on this planet and it, it creates this magnificent golden thread and it's it's absolutely extraordinary but the challenge is that just like humans these uh, silk worms are very sensitive to temperature change. So we're mm -hmm. trying to work with geneticists as well and looking on not only do we have to figure out how we're going to adapt with climate change and the temp and is also all of the different animals uh, that we co-live with and coexist with. But I, I'm absolutely, I have a very funny quick story, but I mm -hmm. uh, accidentally, so one of the farmers, he said, here, and he gave me a whole big pile of the um, uh, of the cocoons. And I thought, oh, great, because it, it's absolutely just mystical and magical to watch them spin mm -hmm. and make the cocoons. It's just amazing. But so he gave me that, and I thought, oh, this will be great. I can use them for educational. We have exhibitions all over. And so I, I put it in a plastic bag, didn't think of anything. Thing. Flew to Kathmandu, didn't think of it. Flew home, didn't think of anything. And and I opened it up and I said to Tierney, my partner, I said, oh my God, these these smell really bad. <laughs> just, just pop them in the oven at 350 and, you know, sterilize them and send them to me. So a few days went by. I opened the bag and an enormous, beautiful, gorgeous, eerie moth silk fluttered out i was i'm every custom officer's you know nightmare <laughs> and but i was like and so and then i didn't you know and then i was like come on the i wanted the other um you know i i, I was i i had wanted the other cocoons and i was all mm -hmm. alone my husband wasn't around and so i had the most profound 
he, it lived, it was obviously probably a male, it lived for about six days, and he must have said, where am I? I'm not in the Indo-Brahmaputra uh, <laughs> ecosystem anymore, you know? I, but I can tell you that I, the, my emotional feeling, like, as mm -hmm. a you can even bond to insects. And so I was down in Oaxaca where we were tra looking after wild um, silks. They're, they're, excuse me, they're wild cottons that they've been growing since Aztec times that they don't doesn't need any water. They don't need to irrigate. Oh. It's forest. Yeah. And they also, though, they grow they grow Bombax morai that the mm -hmm. Spaniards brought over. And the, they, the, the women say, oh, we do, it, we do it at home. We feed our, our, our worms before we feed our children so they become, they're part of the family. So deep, interconnected, <laughs> multi-species, uh, interspecies uh, um, relationships is something that I'm very interested in right now. Well, I love that. So I have three rapid questions for you to wrap up today so we can get you back to your busy life. The first is we ask everyone on the podcast where they put themselves in the powerful lady scale. If zero is an average everyday human and 10 is the most powerful lady you can imagine, where would you score yourself today and on an average day? Oh, that's so interesting. So first of all, obviously there's many kinds of power. Yeah. So if I was to talk about internal power, spiritual power, let's just be nice and give ourselves a five in between. <laughs> okay, That's perfect. A nice, fast place to be. So there's room to grow, but there's been a little bit of growth. Um, you know, I think the only, what I would love to see for myself is the power. I really do believe that only through collaboration, through connection, with other powerful women, you know, we are stronger. That the uh, Chenghis Khan, his mother, his mother said to him, "Now look, <laughs> brothers, stop fighting, and you be like arrows. And you know, like if you're a single arrow, I can just break you over my knee. But mm -hmm. if you're five arrows together, I can't break you. And so I hope, I would hope to connect with." other powerful women. And then I'm sure I could make it up to a 10. But we're <laughs> together. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. For everybody who wants to connect, support you, go on an exhibition, um, learn about all the fabrics that you and Tierney are finding. Where can they do that? Where can they connect and follow? Absolutely. We have a website called uh, Around the World in 80 Fabrics. We also have Instagram, find us on Instagram or there around the world in 80 fabrics. And um, yeah, please, please come find us and join our journey. And we, we mm -hmm. love makers. We love to profile women. We like to try to support other women and mm -hmm. uh, in their process and in their journey and, um, and especially around textiles and the creation. We're in a material revolution right now. So we ask you to come yes. and join us. Love that. The last question we've been asking everyone this year is what can we create for you? What are you trying to manifest? What's on your wish list? This is a powerful, connected community. Um, what do you need? How can we help? Well, right now we are we are actually we are in a fundraising process mm -hmm. right now, and um, we we're trying to raise funds because we have this extraordinary collection that we've gathered of unique. Mm -hmm fabrics from all over the world and unique stories and we're looking to try to have some exhibitions and mm -hmm. so if anyone wants to come along and to join us in supporting that we'd be really really grateful and you know even 
it doesn't matter tiny, small elements, but we also love mm. stories. And we yeah. we want to, we really want to connect the world and the connect women through textiles to transform the world and understand the ecosystems and the natural history of where our, our fabrics come from. Well, it has been such a pleasure to get this hour with you. We could definitely talk for hours more. Uh, so hopefully we'll have you back uh, one day. But thank you so much for your time and who you are in the world and the inspiration that you are to me, to Kendra, and everyone who's now, I'm sure, a huge fan after listening. Thank you, Kara. Thank you and all your listeners. Thank you. All the links to connect with Carol, her expeditions, and around the world in 80 fabrics are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. Come join us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies and connect directly with me at caraduffy.com or cara underscore Duffy on Instagram. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love. <laughs>